Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, our God, look down from thy holy heaven on the supplication of us, thy sinful and unworthy servants, who have angered thy graciousness by our transgressions, and have provoked thy deep compassion. And enter not into judgment with thy servants, but do thou turn aside thy fearsome anger that justly has seized us. Appease the destructive threatening, avert thy terrible sword, that although invisible is cutting us grievously, and spare thy poor and needy servants, and close not with death the souls of us who have fallen down in repentance with broken hearts and tears before thee, our kind-hearted, condescending, and accommodating God. For thine it is to show mercy and to save, O our God, and unto thee do we render glory, to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening earned her Doctorate of Medicine degree from the University of Chicago and a Master of Arts in Religion from Yale Divinity School. Dr. Lydia Dugdale is the Silberberg Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics in the Department of Medicine at Columbia University. Prior to her 2019 move to Columbia, she was Associate Director of the Program for Biomedical Ethics and founding co-director of the Program for Medicine, Spirituality, and Religion at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Dugdale is an internal medicine primary care doctor and medical ethicist. She edited Dying in the 21st Century and is the author of The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom. She lives with her husband and daughters in New York City. So please join me in welcoming to the Institute for the first time, Dr. Lydia Dugdale. I'm so delighted to be with you, and it's wonderful to see a handful of faces and, and know that there are many more listening. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen and dive right in. So I believe Father Hezekiah gave me this title, and I love it, and I'm happy to talk about uh, medicine at the end of life, and certainly that's where my interests have been. I'm a primary care doctor, so I'm, I'm the GP you go to when you're feeling sick or when you're feeling uh, feeling well or wondering if you have COVID, that's who you see. And uh, so I have a, a large number of patients who are thinking about their mortality as they age, particularly a large number of, of baby boomer patients. So this is a, a, a domain that's it's comfortable for me and certainly where I've spent also my scholarly work the last dozen years or so. Uh, first, I'm, I'm showing you this, this painting, which is by uh, painter Alexander Sharp Ross. Not particularly well-known, but I like this painting because we have the doctor at the bedside. Now, if you look carefully, the doctor is at the bedside in a hotel. You can see the hotel sign out front. Uh, the gentleman's luggage is there to the right in the right of the picture. And he's probably traveling for work, possibly, but he's fallen ill. And so the doctor has been summoned to the bedside. But I like this painting in a conversation about euthanasia, because as we know from Europe, one of the few places, one of the few reasons for which doctors still do make house calls is for the purposes of euthanasia. That is for the purposes of injecting patients with lethal substances to make them dead. So while this painting is not specifically uh, meant to be about euthanasia, I think it sort of fits that, that topic well. This is where I'd like to go with us tonight. I'd like to talk about dying poorly, uh, which I'll, I'll, I'll unpack just a little bit more in the next slide. Then I'm gonna talk about the Ars Moriendi, which is Latin for the art of dying. And that's a genre of literature that developed during the aftermath of the mid 14th century, 
bubonic plague outbreak that struck Western Europe. So Father Hezekiah's prayer tonight was so uh, right on point uh, for the prayer for the plague. And so that's that's where we're going to go briefly back to the 14th century. And then we're going to talk about whether this idea of the Ars Moriendi or the art of dying might be revived today. And I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm working on. So first, I want to talk about dying poorly. Dying poorly, I'm going to submit to you, includes both the truncating of life through physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia, as well as the prolonging of life in certain circumstances. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you some of those. But also, in addition to the, these two, which I think pair together quite well, this truncating of life and the prolonging of life, and perhaps prolonging life is, is inaccurate to say, it's maybe the, um, uh, the, the delaying of death. And so I do wanna unpack that with you. Uh, and, and then also this idea of being ill-prepared to die. Uh, those of us who have not thought about our mortality or what we need to do, in order to prepare to die well. So let me start first by telling you about a patient of mine. I'll call him Mr. Roberts. Mr. Roberts was my patient for many, many years. And for probably a decade um, or more, he had had cancer. And he would come to his appointments. He was an engineer by training. He would come to his appointments. He's always very methodical. But he would always say, you know, for as much cancer as I have in my body, it's amazing how well I feel. I just love my life. Things are good. I can't believe I have all of this cancer, um, but, but I don't have pain. And I'm grateful for that. And after about a decade of being his doctor, he came in one day with new bone pain. And we discovered that this old indolent cancer that had been hanging around for ages had sort of uh, come back or, or come alive, I guess, might be a better way to put it, with a new vengeance. And the cancer had, in fact, infiltrated his bones. And he said to me, doctor, if you can't do anything about my cancer, which we couldn't at that point, then can't you at least do something about my dying? What Mr. Roberts wanted to know is if I would give him a lethal prescription that he could take when he was ready to make himself dead. Now we went back and forth on that. I, I wasn't persuaded that was even what he wanted. We had a long conversation. Uh, and, and in fact, physician-assisted suicide, which is what he was asking for, uh, was illegal in Connecticut where I was practicing at the time. It still is illegal there. Uh, but regardless, that's not something I, I would uh, involve myself in. But we had a, a deep conversation about what, what it was he was really after. And ultimately he, he revealed he didn't want to be a burden to his wife. He didn't want to become unable to do the things that gave his life meaning and brought joy to him. And he was really afraid of becoming dependent. That was not the way he had lived his life and he, he didn't want to end up that way. So this idea of truncating life, I'm just gonna set up for you, is one way that we die poorly, that people around the world today die poorly. But there's this also this way of prolonging life. And by this, I, I, I don't mean using medical technology as and when appropriate, okay? I'm going to tell you this story to hopefully paint the picture of what I'm getting at. Um, the, the sort of indefinite extension of life or delaying of death when death has already happened. And so this is perhaps a way to illustrate it. This was another uh, patient I took care of uh, many years ago, elderly gentleman, also with quite extensive prostate cancer. He too had been treated appropriately and his cancer had gone into remission for many, many years. But he came back into the hospital because of new bone pain and confusion. And in fact, he was found to have cancer spread to the bones and to his brain. I met this gentleman whom I'll call Mr. Turner I met Mr. Turner when he was dead, actually. I was on the team of doctors who was responsible for responding to a code blue. That is when the heart stops and the patient is dead. He had had a heart attack and he had died and we were called to try to resuscitate him. Now, generally speaking, resuscitation is a great endeavor. It's something that we can work toward 
and can, in a sense, restore life to someone who has momentarily or transiently died. In the case of a very elderly gentleman who not only was very elderly, but also exceedingly frail and just full of cancer everywhere, we knew almost without a shadow of a doubt that uh, this gentleman's heart would in fact stop again. And for the, the medical doctors and the nurses involved, we, we, were, we, we were going to do it because the family wanted us to, but we were loath to do it because we knew that it was in a sense going to inflict quite a lot of suffering on this gentleman. It, were we able to revive him? And in fact, we did revive him. Um, we brought him back to life. Uh, so I met him as a, a, a dead body before I met him as a human being, as a live man. Um, but his heart, uh, as, as we were quite sure would happen, uh, again, failed very quickly within an hour and a half or two hours uh, thereafter. We brought him back again at the insistence of his daughters, and yet his heart stopped a third time. And that third attempt at resuscitation was unsuccessful. Now, I'm with um, many, I'm sure probably the majority of you on this call that when it is appropriate to use medical technology that God has given us, we should. Um, but in the case of this gentleman, he was so clearly uh, dead and then um, dying. Um, his, his, his whole body was dying so apparently that it, it, was, it was distressing to, to attempt to, to bring him back. That story has stuck with me. And I'll tell you that happened many, many years ago when I was still in training. But the story has stuck with me because it made me want to grapple with this question of where are we? Are we, we're definitely not comfortable ending life, right? We're not playing God. We're not making people dead. But is this indefinite clinging to the, uh, to the appearance of life? Is this how we want to use medical technology? Is this an appropriate use? Uh, is this being a good steward um, of, of the resources and the, the blessings that God has given us? And so I, I found myself um, struggling in that space of seeing the goods of medicine, but also seeing how um, they can lead to significant suffering and harm. And so I, I'm going to try to lay this out for you with a, a bit of philosophy. Now, many of you may be familiar with Charles Taylor, the Christian philosopher, and he has this term, the therapeutic turn. And what Taylor refers to by this is when we take problems that should be or are moral or spiritual problems, and we put them into a therapeutic register. Okay. So within medicine, then, this means that we take things, Taylor talks about melancholy. We take melancholy and we uh, put it into the therapeutic. So no longer are we trying to unearth perhaps some of the spiritual or emotional or relational um, or moral questions that are feeding that melancholy, but we're seeing it strictly as a, uh, a condition that meets diagnostic criteria and that therefore should be treated uh, therapeutically. Now, I, you know, again, I say this as a medical doctor who also treats depression and recognizes that these are complicated. But, but Taylor's point here is that there, that we are prone, uh, we are want to make things easy on ourselves, and if we can get out of the difficult um, morass of the moral and the spiritual and get over into the therapeutic that that's, that feels like a safer space. It's, it's a little bit clinical. It's a little bit further removed. It's less personal, less squishy. And, and that's what Taylor's critique is. So let me bring that back then to this question of euthanasia, to this question of um, prolonging life. So if I were to think about what prolonging life does with regard to this idea of the therapeutic turn, I might say that prolonging life medicalizes the dying process. Um, and again, I'm, I, I think probably I, I use, I was trying to use prolonging life and truncating life because they, they go nicely together, but I'm um, nervous that that's going to suggest that I, I don't believe in life support. I certainly, um, again, I'll just say again, believe in using medical technology that God has given us 
as and when appropriate. The question is when we have patients, which, which is not uncommon in the hospital, who are literally decaying uh, before our eyes, but we are relying on technology to maintain the vital functions. That's the concern that I'm trying to express here. So this, this idea of radically delaying death through technology, that might be a better way to characterize it, medicalizes the dying process. And again, this is not trying to sustain life. We're talking about medicalizing the dying process. And then likewise, euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, truncating life medicalizes not the dying process, but death itself, right? So now death itself uh, becomes medicalized. Uh, and, and this is my submission to you, is that aging, dying, and death belong in the moral or the spiritual domain. Now, I put also there in parentheses because I, I they certainly can, again, um, have interface with the medical domain. This is what I do uh, professionally, but they also belong in the moral and spiritual domain. And this is Taylor's critique. We've lost this. Um, the church hasn't lost this, but the hospital has certainly lost this, uh, that aging, dying, and death are no longer uh, interfacing with the, the moral and the spiritual domain. So, so I'm going to show you this painting now to try to illustrate what I'm getting at, perhaps in a different way. So we're, we're moving away from philosophy back to art. And this is a painting by Hieronymus Bosch from the 15th century. And what Bosch, as many artists of the time did so well, is they highlighted how living and dying is incredibly spiritual and moral. In fact, you can't even think about dying without thinking about these moral and spiritual questions. So what do we have here? This painting is called Death and the Miser. And in the foreground here, we see this gentleman in the greenish brown robe. He's leaning over a chest. And in fact, we think that this is the miser himself as a younger man, either reaching into the bag of money or taking money out. It doesn't matter. That money is what has his attention. Now, you notice he's clutching the rosary in his left hand, but his attention is given to the chest. And in fact, alongside his rosary hangs a key, the key to that very same chest in which he's keeping his money. Now, lest we think that the miser's attraction to money is uh, transient or minimal, we actually see that this is a moral problem. There are these demons or devils or little evil creatures under the chest and in the chest, um, taunting, uh, alluring, you name it, right? This is not just that this gentleman has an affinity for money, but this is, a, this is a moral problem. This is a spiritual problem for him. Now, art historians think that in the bed, in the background, we see the miser as a dying man, okay? Same miser, just later in life. Here he is quite pale. He's very thin. And he is being accompanied by an angel. And if I could show you the whole painting, it's a very long, skinny painting. And if I showed it to you, we would miss a lot of detail. The angel is desperately trying to direct his gaze up to a window, which has a crucifix hanging in it. So the angel, again, this is a spiritual problem. This man's dying. The angel is trying to direct his gaze to Christ. Excuse me. But the gentleman in bed, the miser, the dying man has his gaze directed toward death itself, who comes in at the door and has an arrow aimed at his heart. Now, he's not just fixated on death because where is his right hand yet again? The dying miser's right hand is directed down to a bag of money that another evil creature is trying to tempt him with. So the, the message of this painting is that dying well is not a clinical question. It is a moral, it is a spiritual problem, and there is good and evil vying for your soul. And the things that tempted you throughout life, the things that kept your gaze away from Christ are the same things that can uh, tempt you even in your dying. And so that's that sort of sends us back, you know, truncating life or, you know, delaying death indefinitely, that's that those are just illusions to take our eyes off of 
the real moral and spiritual questions that affect the dying person. So I told you there's a third way that we die poorly, and that is by being ill-prepared. And now I'm going to take us back to the 14th century. And this is a quotation from the Decameron, which was written by Giovanni Boccaccio, a 14th century Italian humanist, philosopher, writer. He's sort of well-to-do, lived through the mid-14th century plague outbreak and wrote about it. And he described what he saw, and they were swellings in the groin and armpits the size of an apple or the size of an egg. And these uh, lesions were just teeming with the bacteria that caused uh, plague. Now, of course, in the 14th century, they didn't know that plague was carried by rats and fleas, and the fleas would bite the rats and then become infected and then bite the humans. No one knew any of that. Uh, But Boccaccio is describing what he saw. And then, of course, an advanced form of plague would turn into gangrene, where uh, the tips of the fingers, toes, nose, lips, and even some appendages would turn black and fall off. So I'm just going to show you this etching, which is by the Italian artist Luigi Sabatelli from probably the early 1800s. And if you read Italian, you'll know that it says the plague of Florence as described by Boccaccio. So Boccaccio lived, as I said, through the plague. He was a Florentine. He uh, escaped the disaster of Florence by retreating to his villa. He was well-to-do. His villa outside of the city. And I don't know what your experience has been through the current pandemic, but I'm in New York City and 40% of my neighborhood left New York City during the height of the pandemic in spring and summer. Um, So this idea that when things get really bad in the dense urban centers, you just want to get away. And here we are in this etching outside of the walls of Florence. And you see this mound of bodies in the foreground of the picture, slightly to the right. Uh, perhaps it's a mass grave, but probably they're just you know, getting, getting rid of the bodies and ha- they have to bring them outside of the walls. In the background, we see a group of men with axes or pickaxes of some sort. Um, and these would have been to bury the dead. So presumably these are men who are hiring themselves out. Um, here are, looks like the priests in the background who are, um, perhaps blessing or uh, putting um, incense over the dead bodies, kind of a a mass funeral, uh, if you will. And then in the foreground, interestingly, this group of literary men, this is uh, Boccaccio himself holding this rather large book. Some people think he might be holding Dante's Inferno. Um, Not quite sure, but but there he is. He, He made it into the etching. So What we know about this mid 14th century outbreak of plague is that in contrast to other outbreaks of of mass disease that popped up throughout history, which many of which are well-documented, this outbreak in the 1350s was devastating. Uh, Historians estimate that anywhere from 30% of the population, perhaps as many as two thirds of Western Europeans died from the plague. And here we see uh, a rendering of the plague doctor uh, who, uh, if you think it looks like his mask is bird-like, that was intentional. In fact, it was meant to evoke the look of an Egyptian divinity whose role was to thwart off disease. So that's what's going on here. But in addition, this beak had a second function of um, being stuffed with herbs and spices so that uh, the the doctor, when he approached a patient whose appendages were rotting, uh, could mask the stench of the decaying flesh by putting the herbs and spices there in the beak. Of course, it's a long waxed raincoat to thwart off whatever it was that was causing uh, this plague. And he has gloves and he even has glass sort of um, kind of bubbles in the eye sockets, a hat. So really, you know, completely covered because no one knew what was causing this deadly plague. And if you contrast that to our current moment, uh, I'm a physician in New York City and in March, April and May, this was very much what we were doing when we didn't understand fully how COVID was being transmitted. We were taking every precaution we could to cover every part of our body. So there's this 
real human sense uh, to try to 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 protect oneself uh, in in the face of very deadly disease. So this brings us to this question of the Ars Moriendi, which I told you is Latin for the art of dying. And let me tell you a little bit about how that developed. Um, so the plague really probably extended for almost a decade from the early 1340s when it was identified in what is now China and then rolled westward being carried by rats. Um, it was probably about a decade of devastating plague. And during the aftermath of the plague, those who survived, which were probably the minority of the population, recognized that many of their loved ones and neighbors probably had been ill-prepared, right? So this is this question of, are we prepared to die? Um, interestingly, mortality has always been 100%, but we don't live like that. We don't live under the, um, under the knowledge that mortality is 100%. We, many of us try hard not to think of it. So in the aftermath of the plague, those who survived were well aware that perhaps many folks were not prepared to die. Maybe they hadn't met with a priest. Maybe they hadn't been properly buried. Maybe there had been no funeral mass, maybe no last rites, whatever it was that um, stood out in people's minds as being sort of definitive for uh, securing uh, eternal um you know, securing eternity with Christ, there was a lot of anxiety that they had not prepared. Now, of course, this is Western Europe in the 14th century. The leading social authority is the church, the Western church. Um, and so there was this kind of plea on the part of the people that they would be equipped, that they would have their own resources to anticipate death and to prepare now, for those of you who know your church history, which I don't claim to be a historian, so don't quiz me on it, uh, in, the, in the latter part of the 1300s, uh, the, the church was split. There were two men and then later three men simultaneously claiming to be pope. And when that's going on with the leadership, you can imagine that the leadership was, was not in a good position to address the concerns of the laity. So when the church met at the Council of Constance in the early 1400s to resolve this problem of the, the papacy, these multiple men claiming to be Pope, one of the first orders of business in, in terms of responding to the concerns of the laity, now this is you know, 50, 60 years later, but one of the first orders of business was to issue a handbook on how to prepare for death. And that was the Ars Moriendi, the oldest version that we have of the text-based version dates to 1415. Here I'm showing you a, a glimpse of the woodcut from the illustrated version, which was developed about 1450. So common to many of the early iterations of the Ars Moriendi was this idea that there were five temptations that the dying commonly faced. But, but here we see the example of the temptation to impatience. And it is coupled with an image of the comfort through patience or a consolation through patience, okay? So I'm just gonna briefly walk you through this image so you get a sense of what these early versions of the Ars Moriendi were about. But here in the image on the left, we see the dying man lying in bed. He's clearly sick of his suffering. He wants to just die and get it over with, right? He wants to truncate his life. And you see him kicking away a man who's probably the doctor. There's a woman in the background, most likely his wife. And this scroll that's coming out from her says in Latin, see how he suffers. So this is like a, the comment bubble in a comic strip. Now he's kicked over his table, his plate and everything is on the floor. And lest we think that the dying process and the temptations facing the dying are not spiritual, the illustrator who remains anonymous, uh, but we have an idea of perhaps who he might've been, the illustrator puts this demon in under the bed and the comment bubble from the demon says, look how I have deceived him. So this, this vying 
for um, the the attention and the the provoking to impatience, the provoking to being sick of it and wanting to die and get it over with. This is a spiritual phenomenon. The artist would have us know. So this would have been paired with a comfort or a consolation through patience. And in this image, we see Christ at the head of the bed with God the Father. Christ is holding a scourge uh, with reference to the verse, uh, he whom he chasteneth, he also loveth. This idea of, um, of with the suffering that God permits, there's also God's love. Uh, this man is being attended to by an angel. There still are demons lurking, but they're significantly less powerful. And then at the foot of the bed, we see uh, four um, martyrs of the Christian faith. So at, at the very foot of the bed is Stephen, uh, the first century martyr who was stoned to death. And then we have Barbara, who was, I believe, fourth century. And she, uh, her father locked her in a tower, the legend goes, to keep her away from the seductions of the world. And while in the tower, she converted to Christianity. And when her father found out, he beheaded her himself. At least that's the story. Um, that's Barbara. There's Catherine with the wheel on which uh, she was tortured to death. And then um, Lawrence with his gridiron on which he was burned to death. So the idea, and again, people in the 14th, 15th century, they would have known who these characters are. I always have to remind myself, but those studying these images would have known without a doubt what they represent. These are people who also have suffered. They also have been tired of the suffering but they have been comforted by Christ and they have died well and died victoriously. So this was the sort of imagery, the reminder, the call to the virtues of patience, the call to the virtue of hope, the call to the virtue of generosity. Um, this is what uh, the Ars Moriendi uh, was about. Now I'll just say one other, one other point before I go on. The Ars Moriendi, the initial iterations I told you, came out of the church, uh, but they were quickly adopted and adapted by other religious groups. So, of course, after the Protestant Reformation, there were uh, Protestant versions. Uh, by, the, by the time of the Civil War in the United States, these the various versions made their way to the United States. Of all the different Protestant versions, there were Jewish versions. And the uh, Civil War historian and former president of Harvard University, Drew Faust, she talks about in her book on the Civil War that by the 1800s, whether you were from the North or the South, if you were brought up well, regardless of religious affiliation, uh, the preparation for death was just something that you did. This was part of living a good life, was keeping in mind your finitude, your finiteness, anticipating that, and then and then, in a sense, cultivating the virtues to live well throughout life. Um, a couple other points on the Ars Moriendi. It was very meant, it was very much meant to be practices that were cultivated in the context of community. So, you know, originally in the parish, and then as, as life changed, it was within the church, within the home. Um, the, the, the virtues to live well must be cultivated now in order to die well. So it's not what we started this talk with, where we're now in the hospital and trying to figure out the technology uh, and do we do we use technology or not do technology? That's not dying well. Actually, dying well, according to the Ars Moriendi, is living well and in cultivating the virtues necessary to live well within the context of community over a lifetime, you necessarily will die well. Uh, so that's that's sort of what the Ars Moriendi were after. There are many reasons why they fell out of favor. And in the interest of time, I won't go through these. Uh, but let me just say a couple of things. The Ars Moriendi developed, as I told you, the oldest version, 1415. And they were in widespread circulation until the early 1900s. What happened? Well, 1914 to 1918, we have World War I. Devastating loss of life worldwide. Tens of millions of civilians and soldiers died. Uh, it was it was devastating. Before World War I finished, we have the outbreak of the 1918 to 1920 flu pandemic. Okay, that flu pandemic lasted a good couple of years. 
So again, thinking about our current moment with COVID, uh, that flu pandemic lasted a couple of years. Enormous loss of life from the flu pandemic. In fact, in, in the United States, we lost 675,000 people to flu. Um, and our population was about one third the size that it is now. So just sort of keeping in mind kind of what our numbers are now, but having a population of the US one third the size it is now and having lost almost 700,000 people from flu. And that went on for a couple of years. So you basically have in the early 1900s, six years of war and flu and death and death and death. And when people got to the end of that, the last thing anyone wanted to do was to look back at the old ways of mourning rituals and dressing for mourning for a year and hanging the death ribbons on the door to let everyone know that someone had died. And we see a massive shift in society, a time of immense economic prosperity in the US. And there's a moving away from the, a radical departure from the old ways of doing things. And there's you know new music, new dress, new fashion, new dance, women get the right to vote. And suddenly we uh, take off into uh, the birth of the hospital, the modern hospital with antibiotics in the 1920s and chemotherapy in the 40s, organ transplantation and CPR in the 1950s and 60s, advanced chemotherapy by the 70s. And we just see things taking off to the point where if you're a baby boomer or younger, um, most of us, and I'm in that group, have not experienced death on the scale that we're experiencing it now with COVID and certainly nothing uh, like what was experienced in World War II or earlier. So many, many shifts in society led to the demise, the decline of the Ars Moriendi genre of literature. So the question that's driven me is, uh, can we revive this art of dying? And I, um, I'm a a Christian doctor, but I work in secular healthcare settings. In fact, uh, both Yale's hospital and at Columbia in New York City are they're very, um, uh, they're very secular institutions where the religious needs of patients are largely met either through patients' own clergy members coming into the hospital or through uh, our, our chaplain service, which uh, many patients who are deeply religious might find a little bit less personal uh, but that's really the the way that uh, religious and spiritual questions are addressed. So in from this setting, I've been wondering, you know, how can I help my patients die better? How can I help them not only think wisely about technology and medical, the medicalization piece at the end of life, but also to think throughout their lives about what it might mean to live well in order to die well. And so as, as Kelsey kindly said, that that's what has given rise to uh, both of my books, the most recent one being this, um, which is rooted in this idea of the bubonic plague outbreak that gives rise to the Ars Moriendi. Um, and then it uh, really tries to stimulate these questions without being prescriptive. This is not uh, a religious book per se, although I have a chapter where I really try to get the reader to give serious thought to what he or she believes with regard to the spiritual or religious questions, as well as many other pieces. Um, this book I wrote for my patients. That was my, my goal in writing it so that it would be accessible, uh, full of stories and art and poetry, um, and I think a lot of fun, uh, but also uh, to be something that a, a broad audience could read and to get them to think about these big questions. So in the last few minutes, I'm going to, if I if I could summarize this whole book in a, a few bullet points, this would be my attempt. Um, but when I think about reviving the Ars Moriendi or this art of dying, I think of these three different spheres, uh, questions pertaining to health, questions pertaining to the home, and questions pertaining to hope. So with regard to health, this might be things like the advanced directive, which is like the DNR order. You may have heard the do not resuscitate order. I know that many people are uncomfortable with such orders and I'm not, this is not a talk to advocate that you sign a form that, that limits uh, some technology, 
but but more my advocacy is have you talked to your loved ones about how you make sense of medical technology at the end of life we're in a pandemic right now everyone has heard conversations about the ventilators uh are you are you at a place where you would be you would be welcoming to a ventilator if it meant weeks and weeks and weeks hooked up to a machine is that something that is comfortable for you um and have you told your loved ones how you're thinking about these things uh yeah, so there's there's many different ways we can talk about this. And my, my guess is there will doubtless be some questions in the Q&A, but it's these sorts of questions, the very nuts and bolts. Have you talked to your doctor about these things? One of the things I talk about in the book is frailty. There are, uh, there are very user-friendly um, ways of assessing frailty. And we know that folks who have much higher frailty don't do as well from surgeries. So when I think about my own uh, grandparents who have now died, one of the ways that I would help guide their doctors uh, was thinking, you know, how frail has my grandmother become? Will she survive this surgery or not? And so that's just another kind of nuts and bolts uh, thing to think about. So these are questions to have in the context of your, your family with those who would help make decisions for you if you were unable to, and also with your doctor. But then there's the second domain of the home. And this is where I'll just reiterate that these questions of living well and the virtues one must cultivate in order to live well, and the answers uh, to those questions must be worked out in the context of community or family. And you know, the, uh, people listen to me and some people say, well, I don't have a family. You know, it, it doesn't have to be blood relatives. It's who is helping you think through these questions. And one way, one way to do this is to say, who would I want at my deathbed? when I'm dying? And how am I working to invest in those relationships now? Is there work of reconciliation that I need to undertake? Uh, do we need to restore some of these relationships? How might I nurture them? And then as a community, what sorts of rituals help give us guidance through the difficult and chaotic and uncertain times such as death? Um, a lot of people haven't given much thought to that. It's a great exercise to think about uh, what what songs or what scripture would you uh, love to have read at your funeral. Uh, that It's a wonderful exercise, and I, I encourage you to think about that. And then finally is this domain of hope. And this gets back to the questions that I know matter to, to all of us on this call, which is, um, you know, why are we here? What is this life for? What is the chief end of man? You know, why are we um, on earth? Is it for us or is it for God? And what does it mean uh, to be here as, as uh, God's people on earth? Um, and to wrestle with those questions together, those, those deeply religious questions. And so that's sort of where I push the reader in the book. And um, I'm going to stop now and, and make sure we have some time for the Q&A. All right. So Sister April, if you want to go ahead and unmute yourself, and then um, we'll try to get to Martin after that. Dr. Dugdale, thank you so much for your presentation. I just wanted to um, ask, I work in palliative care in a secular setting as well. And I just wanted to ask a question regarding uh, terminal restlessness. Um, it's something we often see. And I just wanted to get your perspective on in terms of the appropriateness of medications with assisting in the restlessness that's often seen at end of life? Thank you, Sister April. That's a great question. So I'm going to say, I'm going to just preface this by saying I'm not a palliative care doctor. I'm a primary care doctor who takes care of aging adults. But um, I, you know, I have a little bit of experience. And for most of history, we have not medicated dying, right? So that's sort of my first point. So um, we often, I know there are many questions about uh, morphine and uh, the use of morphine at the end of life. Uh, and I, yeah, and I got the heads up from Peter that this would be on people's minds. But I would say that medical doctors in general, medical professionals, tend to prefer to make things look more pleasant. And so we rely on morphine to help mask some of the symptoms of terminal restlessness and agonal breathing. Um, and, I, and I think we need to make a distinction that when uh, doctors do this to help the dying process look less 
graphic. Um, it is not, it should not be hastening death. It actually takes a good amount of morphine to hasten death. Uh, has a doctor or a nurse ever turned up a morphine drip uh, and hastened death? I am sure it has happened, right? Even in places where it's illegal, no question. But generally speaking, the small amounts of morphine that are used to help kind of mask or smooth out or make look more pleasant the symptoms, of the, the, the appearance of the dying process is not enough to actually end the person's life. Um, when my own grandmother died, I, uh, her, her palliative care nurse or hospice nurse called me and said, I'm the only medical person in my family. And she said, she's showing signs of terminal restlessness and terminal agitation. And I said, just, can you just sit with her? You know, I know it's more work, but can you just sit with her? Because if she doesn't need to be sedated, I mean, if you just sit with her, she, well, I'm afraid she's going to roll out of bed. Well, sit with her. Um, and so, there are many things that we do in healthcare and in institutions to make it easier on the staff. And um, not everything needs to be done at the same, at the same time to say that there's never a place and uh, for, for any kind of sedation, I think would be, would be stepping too far. So with all of these things, there's a lot, we need a lot of prudence, um, good judgment and, and a weighing of it. But as, as non-medical people, anybody who's a non-medical person, I think it's okay to say it matters so much to us, if, again, if appropriate for our loved one to be as, as awake and alert as possible. And um, so if we can minimize sedation or not use any sedation, that would be our preference. I think that's, that's absolutely um, appropriate. Martin, do you still have a question that you'd like to ask? Yes, my question is also on morphine, because I, I've gotten the impression from a couple of experiences that I've had with dying patients that the staff providing palliative care was eager to use morphine when apparently the patient was calm and showing no signs of distress. And it just, it seemed like it was just a, they just expected to do that. So I was just wondering if, I mean, what, what is going on when the staff wants to, is anxious to, to, to uh, uh, you know, provide the morphine when the patient doesn't show any signs of distress? Yeah, I, I think it's probably partly a reflex, uh, knowing that this is one of the tools that we have. Um, uh, I can't speak to that particular situation. But I will say this, that that hospice and palliative care professionals, on the whole, until relatively recently, took a very strong stand against physician-assisted suicide and against euthanasia, because it matters so much to families that they can trust their clinicians who are caring for their dying loved ones, right? The last thing you want to think is that, you know, grandma goes in and they're going to just kill her, right? So historically, the, the profession of hospice and palliative medicine has taken this very uh, principled stand against making patients dead. Having said that, morphine is a tool in the toolkit for, for calming the restlessness of the dying process, for calming the breathing that can be very distressing appearing. It's not necessarily distressing to the dying person, but it's so upsetting to the family because patients can look like they're gasping, they're reaching, they're uncomfortable. And, you know, family members want to get oxygen or call the doctor and, and the, the hospice or palliative care clinician will say, no, 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 this is what, this is what the breathing of dying looks like. And some, and, and really good ones will know when that's coming even before it started. And so they do want to reach for the morphine before the family is upset by it. You might say we're, you know, the therapeutic turn is treating the family also uh, by using these these tools in the toolkit. So it's complicated. It's complicated. Thank you, doctor. We have a couple questions um, coming in that I'll kind of synthesize into one, but they have to do um, back with the topic of um, the medicalization of the dying process and prolonging the dying process. And I was wondering if you would speak a little bit about 
kind of from the Christian perspective, this idea of redemptive suffering and allowing that suffering at the end, but not like prolonging it unnecessarily where that line sort of falls. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a really difficult line. So I, I'm also a clinical ethicist. So I'm often called as the ethicist to come in and weigh in on these difficult cases where what often the, the extreme ones are where patients are decomposing while hooked up to the mechanical ventilator. Um, I am a, a, a big advocate of using technology if if it can help get someone out of the hospital. I mean, there of course, right? Um, but when patients are 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 truly decomposing, and this shows up in many different ways, not least. Um, bed sores down the entire backside of the patient. I mean, there's just some gruesome, gruesome things. Patients who are who are truly dying, and yet their vital functions are maintained. This is where, uh, even um, as as someone who who feels so strongly about life, this is where I would try to sit with the family and let them know, uh, you know, the, the patient in that circumstance is not participating in his suffering, right? I mean, I, I mean, he's unconscious. Um, because the pain is so severe and um, the the discomfort is so severe, and there are extreme cases where uh, where where we want to exercise good judgment. Um, having said that, is there redemption possible through suffering? That is, uh, can God teach us incredible things? Can we grow in wisdom and virtue? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and was was Christ suffering for not? No, right? I mean, that's the core of, of the Christian story. So to say that suffering can't be redemptive would be uh, would be misguided. At the same time, there are extreme cases where um, where I, you know, I mean, could someone still be participating in some way we can't is an unconscious person who's dying and, and sort of actively dying? Uh, be participating and assure, you know, that I can't speak to what I can't know, really. And Ness, go ahead and unmute yourself. Actually, I have two questions. The first one is a continuation of Martin's question. It, morphine is a, is a, dip, a respiratory depressant. So I see it as a, something that is sort of contradictory to give morphine in a situation like that, especially just because of the family. And the other question is, if um, how do you bring up the subject to somebody that has a chronic terminal disease? How do you make them talk about their preferences and, their, and what they want to do? Um, we are in a culture that is afraid of dying. So how do you do that? Yeah, so uh, with regard to morphine, morphine is a respiratory depressant only when it's used in larger doses. So um, in, in terms of actually suppressing respirations, uh, given in small doses, it, it calms the breathing, but it doesn't it doesn't stop people from breathing. Does that does that make sense? So uh, so yeah, I mean, why do we treat the family? We do all kinds of things to treat treat families and to make things look more acceptable. We do that. That's what we do as a society. I think what happens in healthcare in some ways is a spillover of what we do in broader society where we make the unpleasant look presentable. Um, but uh, with regard to talking to patients about, about death who might not want to go there, I'll tell you that, you know, of my thousands of patients they, when they come in for an annual physical, they, they, there's a little sheet for them to fill out. And one of the questions is, would you like to talk to your doctor about end of life wishes? And invariably everyone checks no. And I get the sheet and I, uh, and I say, we, I know you don't want to talk about end of life wishes, but let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, it's flu season or now we're in a pandemic. If you get so sick that, that we're not able to talk with you, uh, with whom should we speak? That is, who would be your medical decision maker? And that's a really, it's just like a really gentle way to open up the door just a little bit. And then I say, um, okay, so it'll be, you know, your spouse or, you know, this person, that person, have you talked to him or her about how you even think about your, your how you even think about healthcare? 
I mean, so with COVID, it's easy. You know, have you talked about the ventilator? Um, and of course, if someone is quite young, I mean, it would be ridiculous to think that uh, that they wouldn't want a trial on a ventilator with COVID. But what about you know my my relatives in their in their early nineties? Would that you know would they want that? And would that be appropriate? And so just a very just baby steps. But these conversations uh, about the preparation for death. I mean, one of the reasons again I like the Ars Moriandi is because it's not save it up for the end. These are conversations to be had over the course of a lifetime. And so with my patients at their annual physicals, that's when I ask about it. Just a gentle, a little question, just put a little bit out there. Have you thought about it? Have you thought about it? How, what do you think about it? Have you talked to him about it? Just a little bit, but over time each year as we see each other again and again and again, that little bit becomes more. And I think we can do the same things with our family members. Um, just have conversations. I'm not trying to be morbid. This is not, you know, I'm not trying to scare you. I don't think anything's going to happen, but we also, this is part of preparing. This is a part of living wisely and, you know, thinking through things, living with a view to our finitude, but also living well, like living fully into life and to sort of bring those together throughout, throughout the course of life in the context of family and relationship is what is what's so important. Dr. Dugdale, this question is coming from Lynn, who's asking um, about the this idea of Ars Moriendi. Do you find that many doctors are prepared for having these types of questions um, talking about Ars Moriendi? Maybe not. Maybe they're not um, like studying it as it was presented back in the Middle Ages. But is that part of the program for their training? And do you find that many physicians can have these? discussions with their patients? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, no, right? I I think doctors are human beings like everyone else. And it's funny, some people think people go into medicine to try to master the human body so that they can stave off death. But the more you hang around medicine, the more you realize death happens to all of us. But I do have colleagues who go to great lengths not to tell their patients that they're dying because they themselves are so afraid of death. Um, I have one colleague who, you know, she, she describes herself as a lapsed Catholic and she's completely afraid. She, she's, she's fearful, fearful, fearful. And rather than sort of wrestling with the beliefs that if, if she were able to work through them in the context of community, in her parish, whatever, with her priest, with her family, um, perhaps coming to a place of peace on these questions, she just avoids it. And I don't, you know, I don't think she is unique. There's also very little training. I do some work with medical students, but there's very little training on even having conversations with families that to tell them that their loved one is dying. So it is, you know, like anything, there more work needs to be done. And that's partly why I, I am doing this work. Because I see how important it is, again, not just physically, but actually spiritually. As a final question, kind of a follow-up to that, are there resources in addition to your books where people can find out more about this, uh, these kind of topics? Do you have any kind of favorite organizations or sites or, or anything of that kind? There are a lot of resources out there. Um, my my sense is it might be it might be best to actually ask Father Hezekiah what he likes from within the church. Um, that might be a good way to go. Um, I know that one thing that when I'm when I'm speaking to um, sort of broad audiences, I often talk about five wishes, which is something that is is common in clinical settings, which is a essentially a script for talking to loved ones about these sorts of questions. It's not it's not at all religious. Uh, it doesn't get to the the big you know million dollar questions, but it does kind of give you the language for trying to begin these conversations. So five wishes is available online. That would be a very easy way to start. But um, I'd also check with Father Hezekiah see what he he likes as well. Doctor Dugdale, thank you for joining us um, here at the institute. Really a wonderful presentation. Hopefully everyone will be coming away from this talk with uh, some ideas of how they can not only prepare themselves, but start to have these conversations, um, these important conversations with their family and in their communities um, to kind of gain a better perspective on this. So thank you again for being with us this evening. It's been lovely.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.